I've given some reports recently of some persecution that's taking place in southern India, a place where Wayne Bazanson and I ministered a couple of years ago, and there's continuing difficulty there. There has been some very strong moves made to hinder Christianity and its spread there. There are people there known as the Dalit people who are the lowest caste. They are considered outcasts. They are the sewer cleaners. They are the people who are ignored and hated in many respects. They are considered really not as people by many. And there's a little bit of a problem that's developed with them. Some of these people are beginning to hear about Jesus Christ, and they're embracing the gospel of Christ. It reminds us of the story of Shambu Day, who was there in a leper colony and had been sent away from his village because the gods were angry with him. These people who are outcasts, these people who are seen in this Hindu faith as those that the gods hate and despise, and therefore people can despise them as well. But there is a message of love that is conquering hearts there, and it's causing great difficulties, because we know that God's word proclaims a God of love. And there is then, on the part of us as his people, a call to love one another and to love him. And we've come to this classic statement of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a chapter that could be developed for many years, I think, all in its own, the classic statement. But uh, we'll look back at verses 4 through 7 today in more detail. But let's remember, first of all, that Paul is addressing questions from the Corinthian church. We don't know exactly what those questions were, but from his answer we can gather somewhat of what may have been concerning to them. At chapter 7 and verse 1, he says, Now to these matters of concern that you have, he turns to those issues. Remember, there's great disunity in the church at Corinth. And part of this disunity is the matter of gifts in the assembly. There are these miraculous gifts, and the Corinthians are taken with the gift of tongues. Very taken up with that, and they are using their gifts in a way that is promoting self and is not thoughtful about others within the assembly. In chapters 12 through 14, Paul is going to address the issue of these miraculous gifts with particular emphasis upon what two gifts? Particularly upon tongues and prophecy. At the very center of this section is this 13th chapter that deals with the matter of love. And so at 1231, Paul says, Now I will show you a more excellent way. You have received these miraculous gifts. And Lord willing, we'll turn more to that issue next week as we take up the rest of the chapter. But he's looking at these miraculous gifts. And as he does so, he is turning now, saying to them, But there's a more excellent way. You are so amazed that God sends this gift and that you can speak these languages in the assembly. But I'm going to talk to you about something that's far more important, and that is this matter of love within the assembly. Now at verse 4, he will shift to talk specifically about love in the third person. But in the first person, he speaks here in verses 1 through 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Now we might respond to these people in India who look at this Dalit class, this lower caste, and we might say to such individuals, you don't understand. All people are created in the image of God and they have worth in some sense in the eyes of God. All people are equal. And we could wax very eloquent on that. You say that these people are nothing. You say that they do not even count, that they're just trash. Now I know it's in a very different sense, but we have to also remember that God is also willing to say that some people are nothing. And he has said it here. Now it's in a very different way, but notice what God says. If we do not have love, we are nothing. And in these first three verses, we have two ideas expressed. First of all, he speaks of the highest privileged powers. You could have the highest privileged powers on earth, speaking with the tongues of men and of angels. All mysteries, all knowledge, a faith that can remove mountains. And if you have not love, you are nothing in God's eyes. Now again, I don't mean that to say that God is saying that we have no worth created in his image. But he is saying, when it comes to your experience and your Christian walk, you're nothing without it. The highest privileged power. Secondly, the greatest self-abandoning sacrifices. If I give my body to be burned and give away everything that I have in pieces so that I can never recover it again and have not love, I am nothing. So we have established here the absolute necessity of love. Without it, we are nothing in the Christian walk. We came then, secondly, to the characteristics of love, beginning at verse 4. And here, as I mentioned, Paul shifts now to the third person. It is almost as if, along with John, there's just a refusal to even try to define what love is. John says, look at the cross. That's what love is. Paul says, I'll explain to you what it looks like. And he goes on here in verses 4 through 7. I'd like to spend some time in application. As we come to these words, let me say that they are great words and they are filled with immense meaning. I think of the comment of William Barclay who said, we will study words in chapter 13 whose full meaning, not a lifetime itself, would be sufficient to unveil. So there is a, a tremendous amount of wealth in these words. But what I'd like us to do is to stop here and to consider this is Jesus. This is a description of who Christ was. Love is patient. Love is patient. The Greek word describes patience with people rather than patience with circumstances. This word describes a steadfast spirit which endures the wrongs others commit against us and patiently resists resentment, anger, or the retaliatory response that they deserve. Patience does not fly off the handle or respond in reactionary ways. Now there are some assumptions when we say that love is patient. The first assumption is that patience applies to human interpersonal relationships, right? That's the kind of love that he's talking about here. We don't need to be patient with God. We live in a fallen world, second assumption. We live in a fallen world in which certain individuals will repeatedly offend, misuse, or harm us with lingering consequences. That's assumed by this word patience. That's our world. That's our life. How does love respond to such ongoing antagonism? Well, it chooses to endure such people patiently. They're going to be there, says Paul. 
It chooses to endure them patiently. It takes the hit and refuses to retaliate. It does not become bitter, hot-headed, or resentful. It does not respond in hasty, rash, vengeful words. It does not respond by escalating tensions and seeking war. Patience is a peace-loving virtue. Now, there are qualifiers here. Let me offer a few. First of all, patience is not incompatible with rebuke or confrontation. Enduring an antagonist does not mean we in no way resist that individual's wrong against us. But when we confront, when we rebuke, we do so patiently. Loving rebuke comes in the form of constructive, truthful words. Perhaps even firm words, but never derogatory, never condemning, never exasperated, reactionary, or harsh words. And always such a rebuke will not tear down the antagonist, but will seek to patiently point that person to righteousness. Patience is not a cool exterior. Let me say by second point of qualification, patience is not simply a cool exterior that seethes inwardly with bitter resentment. I put up with this antagonist day after day after day. Down inside, I'm eating my stomach up. That's not the patience that God has in mind here, and other qualities and commands of Scripture would indicate that. You cannot patiently hate someone, okay? That doesn't work. That's not what God's saying. Patience seeks a person's ultimate good. I think there's a test here that we can check out. Am I patient with those who wrong me? Do I have this loving patience? I think the test can be this. Do I receive the wrong that others commit against me, and do I respond to those wrongs with a state of mind that is able to humbly pray? When you're seething with bitterness and anger and frustration towards somebody, you are in no state of mind to pray. I know we can turn that off and on. You've probably been in that spot sometime before. You're very upset with something and the telephone rings and you pick it up and with the sweetest of spirits you say, hello, may I help you or something. We can turn on and turn those things off. But you know what I mean. Are we really in a spirit of prayer? Now we may be taking on resistance, we may be dealing with a very difficult situation, but can we pray? Reactionary impatience is quite incompatible with a genuine attitude of prayer. Do we have this characteristic? We realize that it is a great call from our God to be patient, to put up with the trials that some people bring upon us. Barclay illustrates this word by reminding us of the relationship between Abraham Lincoln and Edwin Stanton. You've perhaps heard this story, but Stanton was a surly, crass man. He hated Lincoln with a passion and was quite outspoken in his criticism. Stanton once referred to Lincoln as a low cunning clown. Now, we don't use the word cunning a lot, but let me say that wasn't a compliment, all right? Yeah, low cunning clown. He said this publicly. He also referred to him as the original gorilla. And that would probably work still in our day to realize what a cutting word that is. He questioned why anyone would wander about Africa trying to capture a gorilla when one could see one so easily located in Springfield, Illinois. This was not a kind man. And this criticism continued through the days that they spent together. But Lincoln was said to have responded to Stanton with undying patience. He continued to take hit after hit after hit and never retaliated. He treated Stanton with grace 
and with kindness. The day came as president when Lincoln needed to choose a secretary of war. The best man for the job was Edwin Stanton. It was a hard decision for Lincoln, I'm sure, but he said he's the best man. He hates me with a passion. He will be our secretary of war. And he gave Stanton that position. They worked right together in the White House, and Stanton hated his guts all the time. And there's all kinds of stories that went on about what took place in the hallways and that mistreatment that Stanton continued to level against Lincoln, and Lincoln never let it eat him up. He never responded in kind. Well, as we know, one night Lincoln was shot at Ford's Theater. His unconscious body was laid in a small room in the theater. With tears in his eyes, a man stood next to Lincoln's side and looking upon the president's still face was heard to say these words, There lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. And the man who spoke those words was Edwin Stanton. In the end, the patience of love had conquered his heart. We think in light of Abraham Lincoln, how far short we fall of such patience in light of difficulty. When we look in the face of Abraham Lincoln, we have not even begun to see Jesus Christ. Our small, self-centered souls struggle to demonstrate such strength in the face of opposition. How quickly reactionary hostility is ignited in our hearts when someone opposes us or mistreats us. Let us be motivated to pursue the largeness of soul that responds to the wrongs of others with meekness and with gentleness, with, in a word, patience. This is really then a matter of love over selfishness, isn't it? Because when we are attacked, when we are harmed, when someone causes difficulty in our life and they just keep coming and they keep coming, we have a desire to elevate self and to protect self. Love must conquer that selfishness. And I think the key to it is a love of God. First of all, God's love for me. How can we work through this? How can we cultivate this patience in our life? Let me offer this suggestion. First of all, when I am wronged, I should remember that no one will ever sin against me more than I have already sinned against God. I was a rebel against God, yet He loved me and sent His Son to die in my place. And when I'm wronged, I must remember that I continue to sin against God every day and He remains patient with me. I should remain patient with others. The vibrant sense of God's patient love for me should inspire a similar attitude toward others. But also there is my love for God. If my love for God is vibrant and real, if my relationship with Him is growing, then the wrongs others commit against me will not overstep my love for God. And then that love for God will move me to obey God and thus to be patient with those who wrong me. Love is patient. I'll have a very unequal treatment here of all of these words, but I lay down some of these ideas of how to cultivate patience because they'll be very applicable to some of these other characteristics. And so we move on. Love is kind. The Greek words can be translated gracious, useful, friendly, helpful, or kind. It's a general word. 
but it is essentially a disposition which seeks to actively benefit another person in whatever way is appropriate. Kindness is not simply a warm inner disposition toward others. I have warm feelings toward you. It's not that. Kindness acts. Kindness does things. Commenting on this word, Jonathan Edwards in his book, Charity and Its Fruit, said, The proper and conclusive evidence of our wishing or willing to do good to another is to do it. It's a fancy way of saying it's got to come through in action. That's what kindness is. Kindness isn't something that stays in the heart. Kindness is something that translates into our hands and our feet and our words. Kindness is not really a sentimental feeling that you have towards someone, nor is it mere congeniality. Kindness rolls up its sleeves and it acts and it speaks in the interest of others. Kindness is always looking to serve and always looking to give what is truly beneficial. How do we cultivate kindness? I don't believe that you will ever learn kindness until you cultivate the discipline of seeing life from the perspective of others. We have to develop the discipline of life to get into the skin of another person and to see life from their perspective. Unkind people cannot think like other people. They have a tremendous incapacity to think from another's perspective, to see their circumstances, to consider their unique personality, to see how they may be seeing something. And so time after time there is unkindness because we just don't see life from someone else's perspective. I don't know how else we're going to develop it, but to be able to see life from the perspective of others. Kind people have learned this discipline. And kindness is doing for others what you would want them to do for you if you were in their shoes. We're going to have to get in their shoes. There's no other way through it. Love does not envy. This comes from the Greek word to seethe. Envy is a spirit of selfish dissatisfaction with the prosperity and the success of another person. Envy is rooted in self-centered comparisons. I think it boils down at least simply to this. Self-centered comparisons. Their house is nicer than my house. She likes him more than she likes me. She has a better husband than I do. He has a better wife than I do. He makes more money than I do. She always gets chosen before I am. Everything goes so well for them, and we have all of the problems. They do not make the same sacrificial efforts that we make, and on and on it goes. It's a comparison. Here's this person. Here's me. I don't like the gap between the two. So having made that unfavorable comparison, the gases of a seething resentment begin to arise in the heart and becloud the spirit. And from this fog whispers the selfish thought, I'm here, they're there. This selfish thought comes up, I should be there too. Or I should be there instead of that person. Or... I wish that they were not where they are. Envy plagues us as human beings. How do we cultivate a love which does not envy? It is capable of seeing the differences. I don't think the answer is to hide our eyes, 
crawl under a blanket somewhere and refuse to see that anybody's life is different than our own. I don't think that's the answer at all. I think love has very clear vision. It sees that this person is over here. They have more. They have a better experience. They have a better situation than I do. It sees the difference. How do we cultivate an attitude that does not become envious and gets eaten up inside when we see that comparison? Walk with me through this. I think, first of all, we must recognize that at its root, envy is nothing less than veiled anger against God. Envy is veiled anger against God. Are you envious of someone today, of their situation, their place in life, what they have, what they have become in comparison with what you are? I say this gently and I say this constructively, but you're angry with God. What has happened is that you have compared that person's situation with your own, And that comparison, let's admit it, it's made you unhappy. You don't like the comparison. And as that envy has taken root, you perhaps have even come to the place where you resent that person and despise that person. What is really happening is that you are projecting onto them a deep-seated anger that you have against God. Who ordains all that comes to pass? Not that person you're comparing with but the God of heaven and earth. And if he ordains good for another person, and if you compare the good that he ordains for that person with yourself, and you come up angry, your problem is not ultimately with that person, it's with God. Faith in the sovereignty of God severs the root of envy. More positively, I think as we cultivate Away from a spirit of envy, we must pursue a spirit of contentment. Philippians 4 and verse 11, Paul said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. If you are content in God, circumstances can never steal the joy in your soul. In such a state, Paul was really untouchable by envy. Hebrews 13.5 says, now this is a very interesting connection. You might want to turn there. Hebrews 13.5 says, be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Now we understand the first part of that statement, be content with what you have. But notice the because. There's a connection. Be content with what you have, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So here's what he says, be content right now with what you have right now. And what do you have right now? You have God. Faith is the antidote for envy. Faith trusts that God is with me. He will never forsake me. He is always there. What more can I want but God? And he'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. Therefore, I can be content in any situation If I know by faith that God is always with me, then I know that he has everything to do with whatever comes to pass in my life. And therefore, the only safe path is to trust him for dealing with me exactly as providence has dealt with me. Let me balance that point with a third point of cultivation here, and that is that we must rejoice in the blessings of others. If the comparison leads to envy, I'm angry with the sovereignty of God. I need to replace that envy with a contentment with what God has assigned for my life. 
But at that point, I can look at this comparison here, and I can just turn my back and have my little prayer meeting with God. I don't think we've really loved at that point. Love is reaching out to that person in the difference that we see, and it is rejoicing in the blessing that God has designed for them. Now, if you're sleeping here, let me wake you up, but if you're with me here, you're saying, that's hard. That is really hard in some situations, in some cases. I need to move past just simply saying I'm content with where I am and saying I rejoice with where that person is. Because again, a sovereign God has placed them where they are and given them what they have. Envy must be inoculated by actively rejoicing in the blessings of others. We cannot simply avoid envy. We must rejoice. And this, I think, is the positive side of understanding God's sovereignty. If God has chosen to bless someone, it is evil for us to envy them. If God has chosen to bless someone, I should rejoice in what God has willed, for His will is perfect and it is wholly good. Envy, writes James in chapter 3, is of the devil. Love never envies. Nor does it ever boast. Our next word there in verse 4, love does not brag. It avoids self-promoting speeches and braggadocia. Love does not use self-deprecating words in a veiled attempt to draw attention. Love speaks in such a way that does not hold the spotlight over self, but shines the spotlight outward, talking in edifying terms. Love, verse 4, is not proud. The meaning here is puffed up, filled with self. Six of the seven occurrences of this New Testament word are found right here in this first letter to the Corinthians. They're having some problems with this. They're puffed up, they're filled with self. The Corinthians were a proud people and the results were disastrous. This was a church of self-promoters and it was one dysfunctional mess. Love is going to clean that up, and Paul knows it, and he brings this aspect to them, but says, it is not proud. Pride is the signature sin of Satan, and pride is the signature sin of man. I will be like the Most High, said Satan in his rebellion, and following his solicitation in the garden, Adam and Eve struck out on a similar path of rebellion. You will be like gods. Yes, we will, said Adam and Eve. And since that day, pride thrives in the human soul. Pride is always seeking to pull down those above us, bring them down to our level, and it's always seeking to keep those below us on their level, if there is such a thing as below us and above us in the first place. The pride treats others with scornful disregard. It sees others as existing to promote our agenda. Pride is self-justifying and incorrigible. How do we nurture away from pride? I think, first of all, we must nurture a genuine sense of humility for a truly humbled heart generates humble behavior. We must develop a healthy sense of our creatureliness to begin with. Humility sees God as God. Humility helps us to see God high and lifted up. 
as our infinite sovereign Lord, not as a president and equal elected to a position of authority, but as King of kings and Lord of lords. We must develop a healthy sense, then secondly, of our sinfulness. Without the sense of our sinfulness, we will have clouded judgment. We will have incomplete wisdom. In fact, with this sense of our sinfulness, we need to understand that we always have a level of clouded judgment and incomplete wisdom. Humility will bring that to our attention, that I don't see everything. We must develop a healthy sense, then, of self-distrustfulness. We are not God. And we must remember that we do not see or remember every event perfectly, and we do not know the perfect answer to every issue or dilemma facing us. And in all of this, I think the answer is that we must follow our Savior. 2 Corinthians 10.1 speaks of the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. There was no pride in Him. There was no bragging in Him. He spoke the truth. He was willing to stand for the truth. He was willing to say who He was. But there was no pride. Love is not rude. The Greek word means to behave indecently, shamefully, or without tact. Love treats others with all due respect and honor. It does not use harsh or bullying words. It does not tease or joke around in an offensive way. It has its antenna up to detect what is honorable, respectful behavior or speech in a given situation. It does not treat others with scornful contempt. Love has nothing to do with these things. I mentioned our trip to India here recently, and remember Wayne and I were seated in the home of an Indian pastor, putting on a meal for us there, and there was another American with us. He went on and on and on about how horrible the Indian airports are, how poorly run they are, and he's going on and on in these people's home. And Then he said with a loud voice, I don't think I'll ever forget these words, he said, these people need to go to America to figure out how an airport's run. Oh, that's just rude. That is an illustration of rudeness. And you know what? He was absolutely right. (laughs) He was absolutely right in everything that he said. American airports are run better. You don't tell somebody in India that. They don't need to hear that. That is not edifying. It is not kind. It is not good. It is rude, tactless, and disrespectful. We weren't done with him. He showed up at the Bible college one day and got up in front of everybody and said, and we never heard a word about this until then, but that Wayne and myself and him had formed a committee of three to hook up the single teachers with some of the students in marriage. Understanding the cultural situation there, we're in a culture in which marriages are arranged. What he said was scandalous and crude, and it was rude. We can make mistakes as we go from culture to culture. But I hung my head in shame having been in India for a few hours, and this was his seventh trip. There are some people who just don't get it. We need to be aware who we're talking to. And I would suggest again, as I have earlier, that this man's problem was he couldn't get in the skin of another person. All he could see in life was his perspective. And it led to tactless speech. Now that's a radical illustration, but in every way we need to be careful that our words are tactful, respectful, and honorable. 
Love will guide us there. Love is not self-seeking. It nurtures within our hearts a liberating self-forgetfulness. Love does not specialize in power politics or manipulative schemings. It does not run to the front of the line or maneuver for position or demand privileges. Love is not self-assertive. It steps back. It defers to others. Barclay again, there are in this world only two kinds of people. He's overstatement for the point of emphasis. But there's only two kinds of people. Those who always insist upon their privileges and those who always remember their responsibilities. Self-seekers grasp and maneuver to secure personal privileges at every turn. Those driven by love focus on responsibilities and how to edify others. Love is not easily angered. The Greek word means irritable, touchy, overly sensitive, easily exasperated by people. This word seems to be very similar to the word patience. Love has the capacity to handle insult and injury without exploding and without melting down. The early church father Chrysostom had a beautiful picture of this idea of this word and it applies to many of the words in this list. He said, our lives are to be like an endless ocean at which people are throwing sparks or let's use the word firebrands into the ocean. These flaming torches of rebuke and hostility, and they just drop into the ocean and they're quenched in this immense soul. That's what we should long for. That these rebukes and the difficulties that we face, and in any situation, that the opinions and the purposes of others will not harm, but will be quenched in a soul that is large and not self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrongs, we notice next in verse 5. This is an accounting term, to enter a figure on a ledger. Love does not carefully register the wrongs others commit against us. I think as we apply this, this does not necessarily mean that one cannot record the wrongdoings of another. Say you have a property and it's out in a more rural area and you find that there's a bunch of old tires showing up and you get one night behind a tree and you've got a video camera if that works in the night and you find somebody's pulling up with a truck and they're dumping old tires. Now, is it immoral to keep that videotape? No, that's not the point. There are times when there's knowledge that we need to keep to help people and to prosecute the criminal and the like. That's not the point here. This is more just in the give and take of general life. Love doesn't keep this ongoing record of wrongs. It works at forgetting what others have done against us. It doesn't keep it alive. Love tries to forget what has been done wrong. It does not dwell on these wrongs. It does not form a mental ledger sheet, perhaps someday offering an opportunity to even out the sheet. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It moves forward. Love does not delight in evil, verse 6. The idea here seems to be that of rejoicing that someone did wrong or rejoicing that wrong was committed against them. Unlike the tabloids, love finds no pleasure in evil reports. Love finds no thrill in the fall or suffering of another. It doesn't want to hear that. Sometimes it needs to, but it doesn't like to. We need to learn to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And God does not love evil. He doesn't rejoice in it. And we shouldn't. And love won't let us. Love does not rejoice with the truth. Love finds in truth an object of great joy. I take this to mean that that which corresponds to reality, that which corresponds to reality is what causes love to rejoice. Truth is all that is good as it's revealed in Scripture. 
So love does not rejoice in lying, deception, falsehood, hypocrisy, or heresy. It rejoices in their opposite. It rejoices whenever the truth is honored. Love gets excited about virtue and goodness and anything that corresponds to God. Love, verse 7, always protects. This is a hard word. I'll, I'll admit I haven't plumbed the depths of it or figured it out entirely, but nor have the commentators. Taken straight up, it means to cover all things. And with this debatable meaning, some have thought the idea is to forbear. There's these two somewhat different concepts, to cover or to forbear, but I do think they kind of go together. And if I could say it this way, perhaps we could look at it as throwing a protective covering over the wrongs of others. In other words, love does not, as we have noted already, keep a record of wrongs, but it positively specializes in smoothing over differences and offenses. There is a pattern, I suppose, to some degree in all of us, and there are people who seem to specialize in always causing tension. Love loves to spread over, to minimize, to even out the tensions of life. Now, this does not mean that it sweeps sin under the carpet, not at all. But it is a spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation and peacemaking that's always there, always hoping, always reaching, always seeking to minimize what is wrong, not to broadcast it. Bringing out the two nuances of the word, Barclay says, Love will never drag into the light of day the faults and mistakes of others. It would far rather set about quietly mending things than publicly displaying and rebuking them. Love, he writes, can bear any insult, any injury, any disappointment. He brings those two ideas together. Love works behind the scenes quietly to change what is wrong. It does not broadcast the wrong. It does not insult. It does not bring injury. It, verse 7, always trusts. The word means to believe. Again, this is not being naive. That's not the idea. Not promoting naivete. But love gives people the benefit of the doubt. Love is not inherently suspicious. It does not expect the worst from everyone. Love is not ever doubting and always trying to sniff out a conspiracy. It trusts people because it is able to entrust people to the care of God. We must develop the faith to trust God to run his universe. Now this doesn't mean that we kick back and let the universe fall apart. But it means that we rest in God's sovereign control. It means, can we say it this way, I don't have to fix everyone. I don't have to fix everybody. I do not have to know everything. I can leave things in God's hand and I can trust others in the responsibility God has given to them. Love has the capacity to trust. And it always hopes. Love does not write people off as hopeless. It is not pessimistic. Love has strong confidence in God's grace and therefore displays an unflagging hope that God may yet work in the future of a person's heart. There's still hope. Love will always say that. As Morris says, we're not talking here about an unreasoning optimism which fails to take account of reality. It is rather a refusal to take failure as final. That is very well said. Particularly for those of us that are analytical people and can see error all around us. Some people are oblivious to error. That's the way God's made some to some degree, and maybe there's some cultivation that needs to take place there too, but analytical people can see problems everywhere. You can allow those problems to become your focus, and you are not Christ-like. Rather, in the midst of all the problems that we see, and I think we should be discerning problems more and more as we walk closer to God, but ever with an open heart and a wide spirit, 
that says, I'm never going to give up hope. God works in this fallen world and he changes people and I will always refuse to take failure as final. That's love. It's not blind. Eyes wide open, but it also has a heart that's wide open. It always perseveres. In contrast to the word patience, this word does deal with circumstances. I think the idea is that love supplies an energy in the soul which holds us up under trial and opposition. Fee says this, love has a tenacity in the present, buoyed by its absolute confidence in the future that enables it to live in every kind of circumstance continually to pour itself out in behalf of others. It just hangs in there all the time. Love does not easily throw up its hands and walk away. It refuses to do so. It just keeps giving, 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 and reaching out. I know this has taken some time, and I'm telling you, we're just scratching the surface of these words. There is, as was mentioned at the beginning, there is a depth, a wealth of information in all of these. But give me just a few moments to draw some of these ideas together and to analyze what we've seen. This is Jesus. This is how he looked. This is what made him tick. This is the face of Christ in all of this. And it's what drove Paul to be the man that he was. Let me say first of all this. None of these characteristics of love stems from unbridled emotion. Look at each one. None of them comes out of unbridled emotion. In fact, I think if you would go through these characteristics, you would note that every one of them is very specifically volitional. It comes out of the will. It's a choice that we make. It demands an exercise of control over natural passions. Love curbs emotion, and it manages emotion. Love is self-controlled. Secondly, love is not viewed as accomplishing outwardly astonishing things in this great text. It works in the lowly trenches of a fallen world and conquers from the ground up. This is just street-level stuff, isn't it? Paul does not throw a spotlight on the mountaintop of martyrdom when he says, let me tell you what love is. You see that man burning at the stake for Christ? That's love. Now, he could say that, but he doesn't. He says, you know what love is? It's being patient with that person that keeps doing you wrong. No mountaintop experience there. It's just love in the nitty-gritty of life. Number three, love obviously opens us to vulnerability. If you've heard me, you've been catching that all along. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That keeps coming into our minds because there are people that aren't fair and there's situations that aren't right. And if I act that way, then what? Well, let's remember the then what was a cross for Jesus. And thank God he loved. As Lenski notes, while love treats others with kindness, consideration, unselfishness, it in turn receives much the opposite. And so we go on to a strange path, Romans 12 and verse 17 and following. We overcome evil with good. You're not going to find a whole lot of people on that path. But that is the path to which God calls us to overcome evil with good. Love makes you vulnerable. 
But in that vulnerability, love, number four, always gives rather than takes. Love is concerned, writes one, to give itself rather than to assert itself, as Morris has said. Let me illustrate with this. I think what we have here is an image, not of a Cupid, but of a Statue of Liberty. Paul has personified love. As the author of Proverbs personifies wisdom, let's take a moment to personify love. What do you see here? I don't see a Cupid. I don't see this fluffy, immature, sentimental arrow shooter in a diaper. That is not the picture that comes out of 1 Corinthians 13, is it? What we see here is a mature woman with an inner strength, with bright and concentrated eyes, with a strong and steady disposition, a woman who is prepared to stand against all opposition in God's strength. We see a statue of liberty with the light raised high and the sights fixed on glory. Love is meek. Love is gentle. And that is the greatest strength in this world. We have a world that has no concept of that. Love is strong and it's deep. And so we come again, as we did last week, to this place of abject moral poverty. We raise our hands to God and we say in prayer, fill us with this kind of love. It doesn't come from us. This is, as we go back to the beginning of the series, this is a love that is divine. It comes from the throne of God. It is infused in us. It changes us from within. It is divine life. We've got to have it. And if this has done anything, I hope that it just creates a thirst for God. A thirst to know Him and a thirst to have His power operating in our lives. Because by nature, we don't love. But by God's grace, we will. And only in His power can we. So let's bow for prayer. And let's ask this God of love to produce His work in our souls. Dear Father, Words fail us. I plead that you will hear the groaning of the Spirit in our behalf. We're not sufficient for these things. Please produce your love in us. I ask in behalf of these people that you have brought here, these who are the beloved of God, who know you as Savior, Please produce this virtue in us, we pray. Give us broader minds, deeper hearts, and a greater sensitivity to your leading. If there is one among us who does not have this love in their heart, God, it's because they do not know you, because it comes only from you. And I pray that you'll draw that individual to saving faith today, to embrace this one. You, our Savior, who has given your life for us, that love would be born in their heart as they consider your love for us demonstrated on the cross. This is our prayer. Please do this work within us, we pray.